The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, tis the season to talk elections. Later on, we'll speak with Jim Stanford about the rhetoric and reality around economic stewardship in Canada. But first, the art and science of polling. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my guest today is Donna Dasko. Donna currently has her own private consulting practice, but previously, as Senior Vice President of Enveronics Research Group, she worked with the Globe and Mail to develop the Globe Enveronics Poll and appeared regularly on CBC television and radio broadcasts. She is co-founder and past national chair of Equal Voice, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to electing more women to public office in Canada. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, now the theory behind election polling is that is that public opinion can be measured by surveying a random sample of respondents, and that sample will be representative of the rest of the population, and therefore we can tell how people are going to vote on election day. And although that sounds very simple, just like everything interesting in the world, it is not. Uh, so maybe let's start out by breaking down the kinds of polling undertaken uh, during election season. Can you talk a bit about pre-election polls and what they are? Yes, for sure. And we, we are seeing a lot of polls and we're going to see a lot of polls during the course of this campaign, especially at the federal level where there's a, a lot of interest in, uh, in the outcome. So typically what we'll see from the polling companies are polls that ask people how they're going to vote. That's the horse race polls that everybody is aware of. And then the polls will also ask people what they think the issues are, what their images are of the parties and the leaders uh, and and, uh, which party they think is best able to handle various issues. And so those kinds of questions are typically what we'll see in the, in the pre-election polls. But everybody's interested in the horse race. Let's, let's be clear here that this is what, uh, this is what most, most people are looking for. Now, how about push polls? What are they? Push polls are not are not really polls. They're actually a marketing strategy that uh, is used by some political parties in some parts of the country, and those polls are are actually not real polls. They they are uh, questions are posed in a very slanted way uh, to try to bring the voter to a certain point of view that is in favor of the party that uh, that is doing the poll. Uh, we don't have a lot of push polls in Canada, but uh, we, we do hear about them from time to time. And what about exit polls? I guess, what are they and what are they used for? Exit polls are polls that are done on election day. And we don't see a lot of exit polls in Canada um, because uh, various reasons, but one is that the law says that no new polling can actually be published on election day until after the polls themselves have closed, uh, uh, until after the voting has stopped. So we, we have not seen the development of, of real exit polls in Canada, but the Americans are great experts at doing exit polls. And exit polls are done to try to determine who is going to win the election before the, the polls close and that they're done for broadcast because 
somebody has to be paying for them, so somebody wants to do them. And, and it is the broadcast media in the U.S. typically who, uh, who do the, the really big exit polls. They do them in Britain too, but uh, we don't, we haven't seen the development of, of true exit polls here. Now, a poll is supposed to utilize a random sample of people so that the results are representative. So how do polling companies find those random people? The random samples are harder and harder to obtain, and we have to remind people from the very beginning that there is no such thing as a perfect random sample. It doesn't exist in the real world uh, of people. Uh, because we can we can never get a true uh, sampling um, and a true response rate from the universe of people that we're looking for. So um, what we do, the best way to get randomness is to do random digit dialing. That is, we are uh, looking for people over the telephone, um, landlines typically, and that, that is another issue that's, that's come up recently with regard to cell phones and so on. But typically, we would do random digit dialing over the telephone, and then we would come to a household, and then we would interview people in the household in a random fashion, and then, then we would end up with our random sample. So that's the theory of the best way to do random sampling, but uh, in the real world, it's it's very difficult to to get a random sample because of many factors. You start out with uh, the lack of randomness in your selection, and then and then you end up as well with with uh, much less than a hundred percent response rate. So all of these factors uh, end up influencing the randomness of the polls that we do. Okay, well, let's dig into that. It's uh, First of all, I understand that poll response rates are actually falling. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, they are. And why is that? Well, um, people are busy. They are being um, fo- phoned and, and courted by various marketing companies and people who want to get their money for donations and to sell them products and goods and services and so on. And, uh, and so we we find that they're less likely to want to participate in, in the polls. So I think that's probably the main factor that's affect randomness over time. And you mentioned landlines as well. Yes, yes. And of course, we have those issues with regard to the changing technology uh, is that, um, you know, it used to be the case in Canada and, of course, the U.S. and other countries too, where we would have almost universal coverage of households with landlines. And so we could do the random dialing uh, and various ways to do the random digit dialing, by the way. But we would do the random digit dialing and we would be very confident of reaching a very high percentage of households in the country. With the growth of cell phones, the percentage of people, households who have landlines has fallen. Um, now, it's still a very good way to get a random sa- to get a sample and to get a ran- randomish sample, shall right. we say? But um, but it's uh, it's it's less good because of of the fact that more people have cell phones and fewer people have landlines than before. Now, does that does that affect the accuracy of the poll itself? Yes, it does affect the accuracy. Now, we can sample from cell phones, and many polling companies do also sample cell phone lines, but it is more expensive to sample from cell phones for various reasons. And so therefore, if we're looking to keep our costs lower, there is a kind of a uh, a bias toward not wanting to go into the cell phone samples because of the cost. But as I say, it, it is it can be done, it, it, but it certainly complicates things. 
That's interesting because, okay, so cost is a factor, but I understand that, uh, that those phone poles now sort of skew disproportionately towards seniors and those who live in rural ridings, and for some reason also towards the less educated? Well, the thing about the, the phone poles is that we can, we can actually, um, get good samples if we want to, if the polling firms make the effort to do so. But often uh, it is more expensive because we have to spend more time going after those segments of the, of the population, especially young people who are more difficult to reach. So that does increase our cost. And we can find those people in our samples. But what typically will happen is we may be oversampling some of the groups that you mentioned and undersampling youth and, and other segments, uh, urban segments. And then what we would try to do in the sample we get is to correct for that through the weighting process, which is a perfectly legitimate process to weight your sample. That is, weight up the groups that are underrepresented and weight down the groups that are that are overrepresented. It's a perfectly legitimate um, process, but it can be, but if it's extreme, then it, it might affect the accuracy of your poll. For example, if you have a very small sample of young people, let's say 20 people, 20 young people in your sample, and you're and you're blowing that sample up to to make it uh, account for, let's say, 200 or 300 people through the waiting process. So waiting is legitimate, but if you do too much of it, it becomes less legitimate, and your and your sample may not be accurate for that reason as well. Now, how do you know if it's if you're doing it correctly, if you're waiting correctly? Well, we always wait to the the demographic variables in the population. So we would be using census data or we would be using annual population data to weight our samples. Uh, but, you know, we do rely on the census data for uh, data with regard to age, uh, gender, and so on. And we would rely on the annual population data, um, typically collect all these, uh, this data is collected by Statistics Canada. Uh, we would use the annual population data to wait for uh, provincial sample sizes. So, and that's always important because we, we do want to have a, when we're doing national samples, which is typically what we're doing for the national uh, elections, we do want to have a national sample, and so therefore we have to be representative across the country of all the provinces. Okay, let's talk about sample size. What, what should we know there? Uh, typically speaking, generally speaking, the larger the sample size, the more accurate are the results. Um, and we are guided by sampling theory, which, uh, which says if you have a random sample of the population, that sample has the characteristics of the population within a margin of error. And that margin of error is determined by the sample size when you have a random sample. So if I'm doing a national survey, it's great to have a national sample of 2,000, which gives us a very small margin of error, but often we're working with sample sizes that are lower than that. They might be 1,500, they might be 1,200, they might be 1,000, they might even be less than 1,000. So in those cases, the samples, uh, the margin of error goes up. And then if we're wanting to look at regional data within the national sample, those sample sizes are, of course, much smaller right. than the national sample, and therefore the margins of error for your regions are 
in some cases, astronomical. So when we're uh, now, what does margin of error mean? Because it, it's always written below the the poles, and and I'm not sure if everyone really understands that. Well, margin of error is just as I as I try to describe. It is it is the uh, the the uh, margin with within which your results are considered to be accurate if you have a random sample. So if I have an um, if I have a, a random sample of a thousand, that would be associated with a certain margin of error as around plus or minus three percentage points up or down. So my, and that's roughly what it is. Uh, I don't have, I'm not quoting you the exact number, but roughly around there. So that means that the results I'm finding uh, are accurate within like, three percentage points up or down. So if I'm doing a national poll and I'm asking people how they're going to vote, and they say, and 30% say they're going to vote New Democrat, 30% say Liberal, 30% say Conservative, each of those numbers is within three points up or down of that figure. So there are, are a number of other factors that, uh, that also contribute to the accuracy of, uh, of the poll. Um, the day of the week that the poll was undertaken, how does that affect it? Um, you know, I haven't found that to be uh, a huge factor in, in the polling and that, that I've done. And, um, and typically we would be, we would be polling over a number of nights and over the weekends. So I, I, I haven't in my own work, I haven't found that to be a really big factor. So would there be a difference between, let's say, if the poll was undertaken on one day as opposed to over multiple days? Well, typically, if you're trying to achieve a random sample, you would need more than, that is, a random sample of a substantial size. You typically need more than one night to, to do it. Um, and so because we tend to go back to people that we've called and we can't get through to them, so we would want to go back and do the, what's called the callbacks. Uh, so um, I would say, as a generalization, the, the best polls that I've done in the past have been polls that have, that have been conducted over a number of nights or were able to go back to people we've called and do those callbacks. Uh, now, I don't want to complicate things, but there is something called rolling polling, uh, which is uh, poll, polls that we don't see a lot of during elections, but some companies may do them. And the rolling polling is an effort to get a small, usually a small random sample every night. And the poll, uh, it's called rolling because it goes on from night to night. And we would put together the results of a couple of nights. And as we go forward, we would drop off the nights before that. So we're getting what's called a rolling poll, which can give us a really good sense of how things are changing on a daily basis. It is it is one of the, the kinds of pre-election polls that we see from time to time. So what about the idea of robocall surveys where um, it's automated and it's uh, sent right to somebody's phone and they press buttons to respond to a survey? Is that more or less effective than actually talking to another human? Is it more or less accurate? Okay. Well, Desiree, um, we typically call these polls interactive voice response polls, uh, just to separate it from that colloquial term, robocalls. Right. <laughs> Uh, just to put a little more of a scientific uh, feel to it because I think the robocall has become associated with some rogue polls that have been done in the past. Fraud. It's so, become synonymous with fraud. Yes, <laughs> that, that's right. So, so let, let's put it more in a technical perspective and, and talk about its legitimacy. It's a perfectly legitimate type of polling when it's, when it's done for, you know, for scientific or research purposes. 
So, so what the IVR is, is um, you're, you're called by, by a computer, which, which, of course, the computers always do the sampling in any case. But with the IVR polls, you're, you're phoned by a computer and you're interviewed uh, by a computer, not by a live person. And so you can have the same kind of random sampling as you would have in a typical telephone interview that's done by a live interviewer. So the sampling can be just as good as that or just, just as faulty, uh, depending on how you do your sampling. So then you get into somebody's home through the phone and then you are interviewed by a computer. And the computer asks you if you'd like to participate in this survey and you say yes or no. And then you go on and you're answering the questions by pressing uh, your buttons on your phone. Um, this this is uh, a legitimate way to do polling, and what is um, very good about it is that it it costs a lot less than doing interviews with live interviewers. Um, so I would say the main drawback of the IVR polls is that uh, we're not able to spend a lot of time on the phone with people. Um, th- so that's the first thing. So that you can't ask them a lot of questions. So you have to really limit your questioning. And secondly, the response rates tend to be less. So even in a larger environment where response rates are going down for just about all kinds of polls, the response rate for an IVR poll can be even less than that for a traditional telephone poll conducted by a live interviewer. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Donna Dasko, who previously held the post of Senior Vice President of Enveronics Research Group, about election polling. All right, so I, I have a sense of how we poll, but how accurate is this? In hindsight, how accurate are these polls? Well, the the accuracy of it varies according to the methodology and according to, um, you know, various other aspects of uh, the technical process of polling. And um, there is there is another type of polling, Desiree, that uh, we haven't talked about so far, which I think is very important for me to put on the table. And that is uh, internet polling. That is web polling. And, uh, and that's another form of polling. We, you know, we talked about traditional telephone polling. We talked about IVR polling, which is over the telephone, uh, done by a, by a computer. And then the other kind of polling that has come into prominence with new technology are the web-based polls. And those polls, um, have, they do not, uh, even, uh, they don't, they are not conducted via random samples. Uh, they are done by collecting a panel of people to be surveyed. And the panel is put together from many different sources. Some of the sources might be random, but other sources might be through advertising to be part of a panel. And so there's a lot of ways, uh, pop-ups and so on, there's a lot of ways to assemble the, the samples for these polls. Uh, but uh, but this is, um, this is a type of polling that has come into prominence in recent years and uh, the advantage of that is that it does not, not cost a lot to do. People actually fill out the surveys on their on their computers and they go through the questions and so on, and then it's sent in. So I think a lot of people are familiar with those polls. So that, you know, that's another kind of polling that we're seeing out there, and we'll see it in the election polls. You'll see some published polls that are done by that. And, you know, I don't want to just kind of sit here and say those polls are not accurate because they have been accurate in the past. 
but there is a bias toward them not being as accurate because simply there is almost no randomness in the sample. We were talking about the importance of a random sample right. for actually for actually telling us about the population, but in this case, there's no randomness. It may be representative in the sense that they may have in their sampling frame, they may have people from all age groups, regions, genders, and so on, but they're not collected randomly. So there's always some doubt about what is the accuracy of this and what is, uh, and, and what are the, what are the characteristics of the sample and how do the characteristics of the sample match the, the population? So these polls have a bias toward less accuracy, although in the past some of them have proved accurate and, and others have proven to be not accurate at all. So just to, to go back to your question about accuracy, there is mixed accuracy. And because of the, usually because of the different technolo technologies that are now being used in the polling business, we're not using the traditional telephone poll and polls as before. We're using these other polls. And there tends to be a bias toward less accuracy. And that is what has caused so much problems in the polling industry. We've seen a number of examples where polls have not been accurate. And this has been, I think, has caused real damage to the polling industry because of the of the inaccuracies we've seen and the, the fact that, that a, a couple of prominent elections have been so badly polled. Oh, so badly. <laughs> oh, so badly. Yes. And, and so, so this, this is my question. Why so badly? Well, because the new technologies are not as accurate as the traditional technologies okay. and the, and the traditional technologies, because of declining response rate themselves, um, are less, are less likely to be, be accurate than they were in, let's say, a decade ago or two decades ago. So why are the media presenting these polls in pretty much the same way that they have always presented them? Because I, I, uh, at least once every election cycle, we get an article on why polling isn't as accurate as it used to be, but the media is still presenting it in the same way that it always has. Well, yes, a good point. So, so I would say, um, two things. First of all, even though polls are problematic and they're less accurate than in the past, this is all we have. We don't have any other way to gauge the population. You and I cannot go out and talk to a cab driver or, or a man or woman on the street and expect to get any kind of representative, um, um, account of what's going on in the population. We actually have to use the polls. So, you know, it's, excuse me, it's that simple. It's that simple. We, we have to use them. Now, in terms of, in terms of how they're presented, I think that is where we have a challenge, and that's where the media has a challenge. What they always have to do and should be doing, in my view, is they should always be presenting the uh, sample size, the dates of the survey, and they should always have some discussion of the methodology used so that the informed uh, consumer of the polls uh, can actually take that into account. And when he or she looks at the polls and says, well, okay, so this poll was done by this technology, a certain kind of way that may or may not, may be less accurate than some other. And then they can take it into account and they can say, okay, I'm looking at this poll, but I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. And that is really what should be doing. The media should be, uh, should make sure that they provide this kind of information and hopefully, uh, more information online. Let's say if it's, um, if it's, uh, 
tell um, if it's a broadcast poll or television poll or or um, or a, a media a print poll in the in the newspapers, they should be providing more information online so that so that the informed readers can go and and learn about the poll. So are are polling companies required in any way to share uh, their methodology? Yes, the polling companies are required to report their methodology. Yes. So that is one thing that uh, that they they are required to do if they belong to the industry association, uh, which most polling firms belong to the main industry association in Canada, which requires them to do that. So and it's perfectly legitimate for anyone uh, who who is uh, a consumer of the media polls to ask the questions about the methodology, and the polling firm is required to pre- to provide that methodology. Okay. So methodology aside. Uh, is it even worthwhile at this point to to be doing a pre-election polling because it's so far out from the election? I understand the closer you get, the more accurate it is. Oh yes, it's it's perfectly legitimate to to do it, and it's really really interesting. <laughs> Besides, we are all junkies. <laughs> That's... Well, I mean, I, of of course it's legitimate, yeah. uh, but people have to remember that what we are measuring today is today. It's like taking, it's like me going outside my house and, you know, looking at the temperature. Well, what is the temperature today? It's 27 or 28 degrees out here. That's what it is today, but that's not what it's going to be in six weeks. But, but getting the measure of what is happening today is extremely important and extremely interesting in telling us about the election campaign, how it's unfolding, what the issues are for Canadians, how they see the leaders, how they see the parties, and how things are shaping up. And uh, as long as we uh, understand that what we see today is probably not what we're going to see in six or eight weeks down the road. And if I were to think back, for example, to, to the 2011 federal campaign, uh, which I did a lot of work on, when I think back to that campaign and going back six, six or seven weeks before that election day, the, the polls would not have been a reflection of what happened on election day because things changed. And we should understand that that campaigns make a difference and that the results can change. But don't the polls themselves have an impact? Doesn't the coverage uh, of the polls have an effect on people's voting decisions? Well, this, this is a question that is, that is quite debatable. Um, it, it may influence the votes of a small number of people. It's true. It may do that. If people are thinking, for example, of what's called voting strategically, exactly. they, they might, they might take polls into account. But to do that, they would have to have a lot of information, uh, often at the riding level. And there's not really not a lot of information available at the riding level when it comes to polls. But, but people, some people, uh, and, and I don't think we should overestimate the number, but some people might take polling information into to account uh, in their voting decision. So they may think that's important. And you know, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Uh, in this country, we can vote on whatever basis we want. And if some people want to vote strategically, that is absolutely perfectly legitimate for them to do. Uh, so I think we have to keep that in mind. Um, this is a free country, uh, and uh, and people are allowed to vote on whichever basis they wish, and that may, that may be a consideration for some people. I would love to do an episode on the effectiveness of strategic voting. <laughs> 
Well, yes, and it's not easy to get hold no, of that. No, it is not. It's not easy to measure it. It's not easy to account for it because, you know, what you're really saying is that people are voting for someone other than who they really want to vote for. Uh, but in the end, they probably want to vote for whoever it is they, they've decided to vote for. So it, so it does get a little complicated in trying to understand it. Okay, so you, you, de- you wouldn't say in any case that, that pre-election polls are useless then? Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. They are useful. They're interesting. They're important. They are used by the media. And also, let's not forget, Desiree, that the political parties use polling. Exactly. So they are using it for many, many purposes. They are doing polling. They're doing a certain kind of polling. It's may be different from the media polling, they're doing focus groups and so on. They're, they're using the research methods and techniques to understand what Canadians want, what Canadians think, and what Canadians are going to do on election day. So, uh, you know, we have to look at it that way as well. If the political parties are allowed to do this, and of course they are, then, if, then you know, the public themselves, through the media and through other ways, should should be able to have access to the same kind of information. And as long as we keep in mind that, as you said, this is a snapshot of right now and doesn't necessarily mean anything the next day, then we should be fine. Of course, it is. And so, therefore, when you said earlier that the closer we get to Election Day, the more accurate, that's it's not a matter of accuracy. It's that as we get close to Election Day, we are uh, getting closer to the decision that people are going to make and the day that they're making that decision. And and just like, you know, the weather forecast today or tomorrow is more likely to be the same as today <laughs> as it was six weeks ago. So for that same reason, when we're doing a poll bef- the day before Election Day, we should expect it to be very, very close to what people are actually going to do on Election Day if, the, if that's an accurate poll. Is there anybody keeping track of, uh, of election forecasting? Sort of, again, in hindsight, what was, who was correct and who oh, was not? Absolutely. <laughs> Most definitely. Most definitely we are because, uh, the, the polling industry, which I am a part of, is a competitive industry. Mm-hmm. And, and so we are always interested in how the pollsters did after the election and uh, who was closest and who who was the furthest away. And uh, so we can get some very, very interesting stories after Election Day uh, on on the polls and how and how they've done. And as I was mentioning earlier, when it comes to uh, a couple of elections we've had in Canada, the previous Alberta election, not the most recent one, but the previous one and the, and the most recent British Columbia election, the pollsters were completely wrong. Come Completely. I live e- here. Every, every, <laughs> yes, that's right. And, yes, you do. That's right. And everybody looked bad. Everybody looked bad. So it was a real coming down for the polling industry. And um, and but this this is this will happen in in this environment for reasons that I I explained earlier. Donna, wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. And that was past senior vice president of Enveronics Research Group, Donna Dasko. And you can find more information about her on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And we'll be right back with Canadian economist Jim Stanford after this. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. 
To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by Jim Stanford, economist with the Union Unifor and author of the book Economics for Everyone. He writes an economics column for the Globe and Mail, appears regularly on CBC's Bottom Line Economics Paddle, and he's the vice president of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Great to have you here, Jim. Thank you, Desiree. Glad to be here. So we we are going to start out with a disclaimer uh, from me this time, because I am a member of Unifor, the union that Jim works for. Uh, so insert your opinions about bias here. So, uh, Jim, as this is a science show, I have to ask, is economics a science? Uh, it is a science in the sense that uh, uh, people do research, they, they, they look at the world, they try and interpret the world, uh, they try and analyze and understand the world. Uh, but it isn't a science in the same way that, that we think of physics or chemistry as a science. Uh, mostly because uh, human beings are what they are. Uh, they're complex um, individuals uh, with agency. Uh, they are not as predictable as bouncing uh, a billiard ball off the side of a billiard table, even though some free market economists uh, like to pretend they are. So uh, I think if we take into account uh, the fact that, that humans are complex, that they're influenced by the society around them, they're influenced by things like values, um, then uh, we can see economics as a science. It's a social science, um, and it's a subject that we can uh, learn a lot from. My, my main concern, though, is that a lot of uh, conventional economists try and dress it up with numbers and quantitative methods and, and charts and graphs so that it looks looks uh, more official and more credible than other social sciences. And uh, that kind of dressing up of the profession, I think, is, uh, is very misleading. So then why is it exactly that different economists will often take such such radically different positions on economic issues? Well, that does reflect the, the complexity of uh, society. Economics really is ultimately the study of how we work as human beings. Uh, the productive effort uh, that we put into our, our different jobs, whether they're paying jobs or unpaid labor, uh, how we cooperate with other people, uh, how we exchange things with other people. Um, so it is an inherently uh, social undertaking. No one in the world works by themselves. You know, even even Robinson Crusoe uh, had his man Friday uh, that he worked with on that myth mythical island. And, and there's certainly no such thing as a self-made billionaire. I, that term I hate when you hear uh, somebody saying I'm a self-made billionaire, because uh, even if you didn't inherit the money, you still needed uh, workers, uh, suppliers, uh, consumers, and all the other people that you interact with uh, in order to uh, do as well as you did. So it's, a, it's an inherently uh, social um, undertaking and trying to understand and keep track of those um, trillions of different interactions that go on between the billions of people uh, on the planet is obviously uh, difficult to do. Also, uh, human decisions and human behavior is not uh, entirely predictable. 
Um, and again, this is uh, a fact that conventional free market economists downplay. They try to put up a, a, a supply and demand graph and, and presume that individuals are no different than, say, uh, atoms uh, in an accelerator that you can shoot around and, and you'll know exactly how they'll respond. In fact, that isn't the case uh, with humans. I'd say a final reason, Desiree, that economists come with different judgments and conclusions is uh, economics is a value-laden subject uh, in and of itself. Uh, different economists have different views about what's most important, about what we should be aiming for in the economy. And those views will inevitably color their conclusions and, and the way that they look at the economic world. Uh, I think if economists were more honest and transparent about their own value judgments, uh, at least people listening to economists would have a better chance to sort through these conflicting conclusions and, and decide for themselves what, what was most convincing. Well, and those values will inform uh, what kind of economic model you used. So you mentioned free market economics. Maybe can you just run us through the models really briefly so people know what we're dealing with? Well, the way that you're, you're generally taught economics, if you took a first year course, you know, at the, at the University of Calgary, like I did, that's where I started my economics education in Canada. Take a first year economics course and the uh, professor will generally, uh, within a lecture or two, start talking about the laws of supply and demand. And in theory, uh, in this model, uh, different people go to the market with something to sell. Other people go to the market looking for something to buy. What the market actually is, is never really defined. It's almost just kind of implicit as if uh, the whole economy is a great big flea market happening down at the local community hall. In fact, that isn't what a market is. Um, and then the, the two, the, the suppliers and the consumers interact with each other. They negotiate and they come to a, a deal on what the price is going to be. And uh, conventional economists will say that those forces of supply and demand will determine the end price, the end quantity of the, of the good or service that is sold. And then they take that simple model and apply it to every different market, uh, every different thing that's bought or sold in the whole economy, uh, whether it's uh, orange juice or uh, furniture or holiday in Florida, or uh, crucially, they apply exactly the same thinking to what we call the labor market, which is where uh, human beings go to uh, try to find a job and earn some income. So in their free market vision, uh, these forces of supply and demand will all on their own, this is their crucial conclusion, all on their own determine a price and quantity outcome in every single market in the economy, including the labor market. And that condition, I, I think of it as a, the nirvana point, uh, if you like, or uh, if I can use a, a sex analogy, the G-spot of the whole economy. That condition is called general equilibrium. And uh, in free market economics, it's supposed to happen all by itself without any interference from, from government at all. You say supposed to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in reality, of course, it never it never works. Uh, you never have a situation where um, all markets are in equilibrium or, or even most markets. We'd have to even challenge the idea of what equilibrium actually means. You know, in, in that vision, say if there's, a, if there's a, a drought and there's a shortage of water, okay, and there's only 100 bottles of water left, but there's 100,000 people wanting one, okay, in that vision, the price will go up to such an astronomical level that only 100 of those people can afford the bottle of water. And therefore, in theory, supply equals demand. And uh, you'd have to be insane to describe that as a position of equilibrium. But that is how uh, conventional economics would do so. 
And it's most, uh, most ill-fitting as a way of trying to describe the labor market. Uh, we almost never have a situation where the number of people looking for work perfectly equals the number of jobs that are available for them to do. I think in, uh, in, in most uh, cases, it's, it's only applied, it's only occurred in very, very rare conditions, such as a, a wartime uh, economy. Other than that, uh, supply never equals demand in the labor market, and we always have uh, at least some unemployment around us. And the free market approach to economics can't really explain that. Well, so it seems to me that all the economic disagreement isn't usually around the data itself. It's around analyzing what the data means, correct? And then what actions should be taken as a result of that analysis? Uh, I'd say that's generally true. There are cases where we don't... uh, where we do argue over the numbers, um, not generally what the number actually is. Uh, most of our statistics come from reasonably credible uh, statistical sources, usually financed by governments. Um, but we will have arguments, certainly, over whether a particular uh, data series is appropriate uh, to describe a certain phenomenon and, and is what we should be uh, using. But uh, by and large, uh, I think economists differ more in um, what uh, what meaning they apply to that different data, um, how they understand it, how they theorize it. Um, and in, in that regard, it's not different from other, other sciences. You know, you can imagine uh, modern physics, uh, for example, taking data readings. Uh, physicists would, um, they don't really disagree on the number that they're actually reading, but they'll come up with very different theories to explain why a certain object is behaving that way. And it's only through repeated um, experimentation and uh, trying and rejecting different theories that they eventually settle on uh, on one that they think that, one that is a consensus uh, within the, the profession. Uh, in economics, it's even harder to do that, as I say, because of the uh, unpredictability and the social nature of the behavior that we're describing. So then, by that right, is is any analysis and resulting recommendations ultimately purely ideological? Like, what's the ratio of, of model to values? Uh, you're being very quantitative there. I, I have to. <laughs> Um, wow, I, 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 I obviously hesitate to put a number on it. Yes. It's, it's certainly a mixture of, I'd say, concrete empirical observation and experimentation. And, and I do that a lot in my work. You know, even though I'm a, a what I call a heterodox economist, I do not accept that free market view. And I work for a trade union. I don't work for a bank or a university. Yet I still do a lot of uh, quantitative analysis. Um, and and uh, in general, I don't have my facts challenged because uh, I'm using the, the same official data sources uh, and so on. Right. But there there's uh, all also an awful lot of um, uh, uh, debate and conflict among economists over uh, how we how we understand and theorize the observed uh, behavior that we're describing with those facts. So, you know, why, why, for example, um, do you have some households where uh, both parents go out and work to try and support the kids and other households where only one works and the other stays at home? What are the what's the mixture of uh, cultural and economic uh, and uh, um, gender forces at work? Uh, describing that. Uh, conventional supply and demand theorist might say, well, the, the household where the, the man is out working, the woman's home raising the kids has just made a rational cost-benefit decision that the man can earn more out in the labor market. So, uh, And daycare is expensive. Therefore, the, uh, the woman uh, is optimizing the situation by staying home and raising the kids for free. Uh, obviously, that's not an adequate
adequate explanation of that phenomena, and it doesn't help explain why that phenomena has changed uh, so much, even though it's, it still happens in some families, but it doesn't happen uh, very much. And um, I think you need that more complete uh, analysis that takes into account things like power differentials uh, between different classes or different genders or different groups of uh, people, uh, things like cultural and social expectations and how they shape our preferences. Our preferences as individuals didn't just uh, come out of our heads. Uh, we were raised uh, to think and believe uh, in, in different things, uh, as well as the economic issues like the availability uh, of work. Are there jobs out there uh, if the mother did decide to go uh, and do paying work on top of the unpaid work that she does at home and so on. So I believe firmly that a more complete historical social approach to economics always tells you a fuller story than just grabbing a bunch of data off of the Statistics Canada website and running a few regressions. Okay, well, maybe we can give people an example of sort of the, the different realms of thought around this. Uh, I'm thinking of recession. So how do you tell whether a country is in one? Well, there's a rule of thumb that economists in most uh, countries use. It, it very much is a rule of thumb. It's not a hard and fast definition, uh, which says an economy is in recession recession if the uh, total sum of its gross domestic product is GDP adjusted for inflation. So what we're doing with GDP is adding up the value of all the goods and services produced in the economy and sold for money. That's an important thing. GDP does not take into account the value of unpaid work that goes on in the home or, or our communities. If real GDP declines for two quarters in a row, and a quarter is, of course, a three-month period like January, February, March, or April, May, June, uh, then the country's in uh, a recession. That's a, a very arbitrary rule, of course, but it's a simple way of judging. Is the overall flow of the economy kind of moving forward and growing and expanding and generating more stuff and more incomes? Or is it stuck in the mud or worse yet, even shrinking? Um, the United States has a more complex system for determining whether the economy is in a recession. There's actually a committee, a fancy committee uh, based in Harvard, where they, uh, a group of economists measure a number of different uh, indicators, including obviously GDP. Uh, and then they try to determine on the basis of them all if the economy is in a widespread downturn or not. For the average person, I think you can just think uh, if a recession means if the economy is growing or shrinking. If it's shrinking, then you're in a recession. This is Science for the People, and I'm here with Jim Stan. Stanford, economist and author of Economics for Everyone. Okay, so I'd like to talk about the Unifor report you recently co-authored, and the title was Rhetoric and Reality, Evaluating Canada's Economic Record Under the Harper Government. Uh, so maybe just tell us a bit about it. Well, uh, we are in a federal election campaign in Canada. The election is in um, uh, middle October. And uh, the Conservative government that's in power right now, uh, led by Prime Minister Harper, is uh, hoping to get re-elected. And they're using their economic um, reputation, uh, if you like, as business-friendly, as knowledgeable about supply and demand forces uh, as, as one of their chief selling points. Um, the interesting point is, if you look back over the uh, nearly a decade that the Conservative government has been in power in Canada, uh, it has been very disappointing uh, in terms of actual concrete economic outcomes. We had that a recession, of course, in 2008-2009 that followed the global financial crisis. Canada was not alone in that. Uh, the whole world economy really was in recession. A few countries escaped, but not many. Um, even more, I think, concerning is that the period since then, that recession officially ended over six years ago. That's when our GDP began growing again after a period of shrinkage. And uh, even during that six-year period, uh, for the most part, Canada's economy has just kind of staggered uh, along. There's been, you know, 
a short periods of growth in sh some regions of the country. The energy sector was booming for a while and not anymore. Uh, but the whole national economy was not on a, a very optimistic uh, trajectory. So um, that kind of difference, if you like, the contrast uh, between the sort of self-congratulatory tone where the government says you're in fine hands, we're the best economic managers, and the much grittier reality that most people face in their day-to-day -day economic lives uh, led us uh, at our research department to to undertake, a, I think, a very um, comprehensive empirical review of Canada's economic performance going all the way back to the end of the Second World War. What we did, uh, Desiree, we identified 16 common indicators of economic performance. Um, and, and again, the indicators are, are the sort of bread and butter things you read about in the business pages uh, every day, things like uh, GDP growth, uh, job creation, our exports, uh, business investment, uh, personal incomes, uh, how, how are our debts going, our public debts and our household debts. 16 different indicators. We put together a, a consistent statistical record going back to 1946. And then we we evaluated the performance of each of the major prime ministers that has served uh, during that period. There were nine prime ministers who served for a minimum of one full year between 1946 and the present. And uh, that allowed us to kind of do a, a bit of a report card, I guess you'd say, on each of the nine prime ministers and uh, then see how the current government stacks up. Is its claim to be the best economic manager ratified uh, by the economic numbers that we pulled together? And what were your results, sir? <laughs> Uh, I kind of I, I set it up there for the you moment did. of <laughs> Uh, well, um, interestingly enough, um, the the present government, uh, out of the 16 indicators, uh, ranked last of the nine in seven of the 16 categories uh, on subjects including job creation, uh, export growth, uh, real GDP growth, uh, accumulation of household debt, uh, and so on. They ranked second last on another six indicators, and so the remaining three indicators they ranked uh, six or seven. So um, we then actually calculated an average grade for each of the prime ministers. Uh, one would be the best you could be. If you ranked first in everything, then your report card would be number one. Nine would be the worst. If you ranked last in everything, you'd be number nine. The Harper government came in at 8.05, an average score. So almost as bad as they could be and uh, considerably worse than even the second worst uh, prime minister, which was Brian Mulroney, who was in power from 1984 to 1993. So, um, you know, if you believe uh, the rhetoric, uh, if you believe the claims that conservatives, because they understand free markets are naturally the best managers of the economy, then you'll be surprised uh, by this finding that, in fact, there's never been a period in Canada's post-war history where the economy performed worse on a long-term basis than under the uh, present Conservative government. Now, let's let's talk about this, because how I usually research a topic is that, that I want to make sure that I'm as objective as possible about is I look for the opposing positions on it, uh, usually on the internet. Uh, but that was very difficult for me to do with this paper because I couldn't find any opposing viewpoints because the only place that this report is being mentioned is on progressive and left-wing websites. So there's basically no coverage in mainstream media or on conservative sites, uh, which makes it very hard for a non-economist to to have any argument with you whatsoever. Any thoughts on that? Well, there has been some mainstream media coverage. I agree, not a whole lot. And I suspect a lot of reporters, you know, kind of did the 
it well. That's a union that put out this report. Exactly. It's not credible. And and I find that very, um, very insulting, frankly. They do not do that if it's a bank. If we were the research department at a bank and put out a report like this, it would be front page news. Well, they also don't do that when the Fraser Institute puts out a report. And for anybody right. who doesn't know, that's a that's a right wing think tank. Um, but but they will cover yeah. every little report that comes out. So I think there's a natural a natural bias in how the media interprets uh, economic news. They assume that that business and banks uh, and so on are somehow neutral, but a trade union is is not. <laughs> But uh, never mind that. We did get some media coverage, um, and some conventional media coverage. We've had an awful lot of social media coverage. Mm. Uh, it is a new world in terms of how you get the Tons. news. And both when our report was initially released and then when we had a follow-up uh, Q&A uh, session with me on Twitter, uh, the, the topic was trending number one in Canada on both of those occasions. And we've had a lot of visits uh, to our website. There's a short video that explains uh, the methodology and so on that's got a lot of uh, uh, traffic on YouTube. Uh most importantly, I think I think that the findings of our report have kind of uh, sunk into the into the um, into the backdrop of of the election campaign, if you like. There's no doubt that the conservatives have read the report. They probably pulp, you know, gone through it with a fine tooth comb, trying to find some mistake. Um, the opposition parties have certainly uh, looked at the report. Uh, the journalists covering the campaign are aware of the report, and so you see it coming up in different kinds of ways. Some of the questions that get asked about Canada's uh, uh, job record, for example, in, even in the TV debates that came up, that Canada has uh, under Harper has had the worst job creation record since the Second World War. That clearly came from our report. So, in that regard, I think we are influencing uh, the debate. I think the, the the reason you haven't seen a sort of a full-on critique of our report is the, the other side in this debate has, has decided it's to their advantage to just ignore the report rather than take it full-on. Um, that may change, you know, if, uh, if the economic numbers continue to get worse and people use and cite our report as the campaign um, goes on, then you may see somebody being more willing to engage. I've thought about uh, challenging somebody to debate. You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll do that before the election. Is uh, pick a uh, a more right wing economist and say, okay, come, let's have a let's have a debate in a public forum on this conclusion of ours that the current government's record is the worst of any since the Second World War, um, and and kind of have at it that way. I, I would look forward to the chance to show that we didn't pick these conclusions out of thin air. They're very well grounded in these uh, official uh, statistics from Statistics Canada and other public sources um, about uh, how we describe Canada's performance under all the different prime ministers. Well, how about let's do this. Uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind just participating in a bit of a game, sure. if, uh, what would the arguments be against this paper? P- pretend for a moment that you're a conservative. Okay. What would their arguments be? And please don't straw man yourself. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I think um, they may try to... Uh, I, I don't think they would succeed in challenging the actual numbers. I don't think they will find any mistakes uh, in our uh, in our statistical approach and our methodology. And and that's in part because we laid it out completely in the report. There's like a 30-page statistical appendix that not only lists the full sources, it actually lists the full data set that we uh, compiled. In fact, that's a kind of a useful public service because it's not easy to develop a consistent series going back that far because these the statistical agencies keep changing their surveys and breaking off the uh, surveys and so on. 
So it's all there. So I don't think they'll go after us on the numbers. They may say that we have a biased set of indicators. They may say, well, if you looked at something other than the 16 indicators that you chose, um, the government would look better. Right. Um, I don't think that argument really holds. Uh, the indicators we've chosen are not left-wing indicators. You know, it's not how well did the workers do or how well did the unions do. It's how well did the whole economy do? How how well did overall personal incomes do? Uh, and so on. There, there might be a couple of indicators where they uh, where they say, no, we should have that in here. One, one example, we included household debt uh, as an indicator. Um, and we found that the Conservatives government uh, was tied for uh, the biggest increase in household debt during their time in, in, in office. And I, I think that's relevant. It's funny that we're always talking about government debt and how bad government debt is. And we ignore the fact that households are in debt up to their eyeballs and uh, that that's a risky, in some ways, more risky situation than government debt. Uh, they might say, well, what about household wealth? You know, you've seen rising house prices and, and uh, some financial assets have performed well. We, you should measure household wealth. And we think household wealth is, uh, is better. Um, and they might find a couple of other indicators. Um, I think the biggest counterpoint that we would get, and a couple of newspaper columnists have said this, is they acknowledge that, yes, our performance was worse than any other post-war prime minister, but that was because of global pressures right. that we had no control over. Uh, so, yes, your numbers are correct, but you can't blame the government, basically, would be their, their fallback. They'd say we had this uh, worldwide recession in 2008, 2009. Yeah, there's still continuing global uncertainty, um, so um, you can't really blame the government. I think that would be their main counterpoint. And what would you say to that? Uh, well, we kind of anticipated that uh, to some extent, um, and there's a couple sections in the report discussing this. Uh, first of all, yes, Canada did have that recession in 08-09, but it wasn't the first recession Canada ever experienced. We've actually had 10 since World War II, and that one was not even the worst uh, by most indicators. The recessions in 81, 82, and uh, 1990 to 1992. Those two recessions were, were both deeper and longer lasting uh, by most indicators. Uh, if we do compare Canada to the rest of the world, um, we don't look that great, even for the same period. So the rest of the world experienced the same turbulence in 0809 as Canada did. And uh, contrary, again, to the conventional wisdom that Canada did better uh, than anyone else. In fact, uh, Prime Minister Harper even said once that Canada's economy was the envy of the entire world, which is a very strong statement to make and isn't remotely true. Uh, we looked at different ways to rank Canada's economy uh, since 2006 when the Conservatives were elected. Um, and and uh, we found we rank uh, 18th or 20th out of the uh, countries in the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, so that puts us in the bottom half of industrial countries in terms of how well we did. We were not hit the worst. There's places like Greece that are right. doing much, much, much worse than Canada. So, um, But we are far, far, far from the best. There's many countries out there like Germany, uh, Korea, uh, Australia that have done better than Canada uh, in managing their way through this whole uh, turbulent uh, time. So whether you look over history uh, or whether you compare us in the same period of time to other countries, uh, Canada's uh, economic credentials are not nearly as glowing as the government likes to claim. Sir, if you ever do a debate on this topic, please tweet it out so that we can retweet <laughs> it to our followers. Oh, I sure will. I sure will. I've got to find somebody. I've got to find my debating my debating partner, my sparring buddy uh, to see uh, if, we can, if we can make this happen. I think it would be very entertaining. 
Now, before we go, is there anything else that you'd like people to know about this paper or about economics in general, actually? Well, my work as an economist uh, working for a trade union, in a way, I've, I've really tried to emphasize demystifying the whole subject. I, I know a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they think about economics because they think it is about math. They think it's about charts and graphs. And they say, I just don't understand economics. And that's so wrong because uh, anyone who has to get out of bed on Monday morning and go off to their job uh, – keep their job, uh, earn their income, and then hopefully pay their bills with that income. You know all about economics. That is economics. That is the economics of life, right? As opposed to the economics of the stock market that you read about in the paper every day. So I'm always trying to encourage and emphasize uh, the economic knowledge and the legitimate economic self-interest of average people in society rather than uh, leaving it to uh, to the experts. And when you look at the economics of people's day-to-day -day lives, there's no way you could come to the conclusion that we live in the best of all possible worlds which is what the government claims. So uh, in that regard, I'm, I'm hoping to um, pull back the curtain and shed a little light on what the real economy looks like. And I'm going to put my own personal plug in for your book, because uh, if guys out there, if you uh, if you are guys being gender neutral, if you guys are interested in economics, this is a fantastic book that will actually take you through the different models and the things you should actually be thinking of when you're reading the paper every day. Um, so Jim, thank you very much for being here. It was great uh, to have you. It was my pleasure. And uh, if people want to follow up on your plug, the website economicsforeveryone.com has uh, got links where you can order the book online. And that was Jim Stanford, author of the book, Economics for Everyone. Head to our website at scienceforthepeople.ca for a link to his work. And feel free to click all the other links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, or to our new Patreon page, where you can help support the show and get extra programming goodness in return. Thanks so much to all of you that have signed up so far. We appreciate it. You're great. Thanks for listening and see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.